Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, September the 22nd, 2023. A couple of days ago, we did an interesting uh, interview uh, with Josh Ober, who teaches both political science and uh, antiquity, uh, Greek and Roman civilization at Stanford University, talking about democracy. Josh uh, has co-authored a new book, The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. It's a book focusing on both the history of democracy and its future, using uh, four, four examples from history to show how democracy can indeed survive and, and what we owe the past, Gr Greece, uh, Rome, uh, 18th century England and 19th century America. Uh, Josh did the Roman and the Greek bits. And uh, my guest today, Brooke Manville, who is a longtime um, McKinsey consultant, a man about town who knows his way around the business world, studied at Oxford, uh, lives now in Washington, D.C., focused on the sections on modern Britain and modern America in terms of this ideal of a civic bargain under uh, underlining strengthening democracy. Uh, Brooke, to begin, let's show, I want to show you a clip from my conversation with Josh talking about why he remains optimistic about democracy. And then I want to get your take on your sense of optimism about the future. Great. It's imperative that we be, um, because if we all become too pessimistic, uh, then uh, we'll simply give up. Um, and at that point, um, uh, democracy becomes impossible. So democracy has always been an experiment. Um, the experiment sometimes is running well, and sometimes it seems to be running badly. Um, there have been remarkable challenges for every viable democracy in history. So I think that until democracy has died, until it has been overthrown, it behooves us to ask, how is it that democracy can survive? Brooke, is that right? Has democracy always been an experiment? Is that one way to look at it? I think many people these days see it as a finished product. I think I think you're right. Uh, they do. And I think that's one of the uh, misconceptions we're probably trying to drive against. Um, democracy is is really hard to make work. And in the history of uh, governance through human civilization, it's it's a minority presence. Um, there are a lot more authoritarian uh, regimes and empires than there are democracies. Uh, so when it is able to take hold, uh, it's usually entering some kind of uh, long odds and also uncharted territory because different democratic uprisings and, and uh, settlements uh, often pursue relatively different courses of, of getting to what we consider to be the same end game, which is essentially um, people governing themselves, citizens governing themselves, and we use the phrase uh, without a boss, uh, just to simplify it. Uh, people living with one another, making decisions with one another, uh, and not having to yield to some boss. They do have a boss, however, and that's basically each other. 
And that is, of course, uh, always going to be experimental because people disagree and how they work out their differences uh, can take a lot of different uh, courses. Seems to me that um, there are two problems with the way in which people think about democracy today. Either they think it's perfectly imperfect or they seeking perfection. And the point of your book in its historical framing is that democracy has never been perfect and never will be. Is that fair? Um, and perhaps you can begin to talk about the way in which the democracy of antiquity was reinvented in 18th century England and then in 19th century America. Yeah, I, 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 I think that uh, what you said is, is, is right, uh, that there is um, a world of people who I think assume democracy is this settled and perfect creation. Um, and it's something that has always been here and it will always be there. Uh, and then they get unhappy if it doesn't quite match what they think perfection ought to be or, you know, a, a, a perfect life. And a lot of the uh, battles and polarization that we're suffering today is kind of the, the war between almost, you know, the, it's religious like war, although it's not always religious, uh, about, you know, my view of heaven versus your view of heaven. Um, if you look back at uh, the struggles of uh, for, for for democracy in in Great Britain, for example, or uh, later in America, a lot of it was through a lot of struggle about what is the per perfect way for us to live. I mean, in the case of, of of the rise of democracy over in Britain, it was entwined with literally religious wars uh, about Protestantism, Catholicism and the degree to which um, a certain view of, of heaven, if you like, should be uh, melded into how people govern themselves. And that, that raised passions and literally caused a civil war uh, and also hung over uh, the next several years after there was essentially a transition to a, a parliament-led governance model. Um, and it continues to be, you know, part of the story. Uh, so I, I think that this notion of perfection gets us into trouble. Uh, and I think one of our missions is we need to have people understand that democracy is a human construct. People are not perfect. They will differ. And it's very difficult to be objective about what is the perfect way for people to govern themselves and what kind of values and, and things like that. And as a result, they are forced into either war uh, or better, which we say, uh, to make bargains with one another, to negotiate, to find compromise and accommodation so that they can live together and manage themselves again without a boss. As your friend James Madison said, we're not angels, which is, of course, the foundation of his philosophy of government. Let's have a brief history lesson, Brooke. You take up... Um the baton from Josh uh, in, in modernity. But he lets up, he, he, he gives up after the fall of the Roman, uh, the, the Roman Republic. What happens between the Roman Republic and 18th century England where there is no civic bargain? Why, why for example, is there no civic bargain, no democracy, at least in my senses in your view, 
in the feudal system? Why, why is feudalism antithetical to democracy? Actually, uh, the story as we tell it is that feudalism in the, in the Middle Ages, um, going back to Anglo-Saxon times in, in, uh, in, in England and, and Britain, um, was a prelude uh, because there were bargains. I mean, our story is that, that the civic bargain, which is the, the arrangement that citizens make with one another once they have the freedom to do so about how they will govern themselves, uh, grew out of uh, other uh, simpler forms of basically political bargaining, uh, and that you know people learned the value of bargaining. So if you go back to Anglo-Saxon times and the sort of the origins of what became the feudal system, it was essentially a deal. Uh, the king made deals with uh, powerful nobles uh, and also with the church that uh, they would support him, the king. He would in turn provide leadership to protect them against raids from Vikings and other uh, people who would like to take over uh, Britain. Uh, in the case of the church, it was they would promote the, uh, the Catholic religion uh, in exchange for support of the divine right of the king. So there really was a bargain in terms of just governance. It wasn't anything close to democracy, but there was bargains made for the political welfare um, of all, all concerned. And there were some trade-offs. The king had to acknowledge that he was not completely in control. He had to depend on the, on the support of his, of his nobles. Uh, the nobles had to, had to depend on the support of the people working the fields and serving in the armies. Um, the church had. But, uh, I take your point on this bargain, and, and you guys are kind of in your own way, your rational choice theorists, right. your interpretation of history. Right. But the peasants never had a place at, at that table. You talk about the nobility and the king. I understand in that sense. One of the things that intrigued me about my conversation with Josh earlier this week was his argument that the democracy worked in Rome because of a tacit understanding between the plebeians and the patricians that they were part of the same community. And while they were different, they were able to come to the table and talk, if not as equals, as perhaps political equals. Did that get lost in feudalism? Is that one of the problems with why democracy seems to disappear in some ways or evaporate in the period between the collapse of the Roman Republic and the rise of 18th century English democracy? Yeah, I, I think it, it disappeared from the ancient world, but it, it slowly came back over the course of literally centuries. Um, I mean, there, there was a common good. At the beginning, uh, they had to defend themselves against invasion. And you get to the period of the, the Magna Carta, um, there was a desire amongst, you know, lesser people to not be abused by the king uh, for, you know, the money that he was extracting in taxes and lots of other things. And there had to be some understanding that if we get some level of individual uh, rights and protections, we will be uh, more agreeable about paying taxes and supporting the, you know, the king in what increasingly became ventures to go conquer France and that kind of thing. Um, and that carries through into the, the late Middle Ages. There is this, 
this sort of semi, it's not really democratic, but there's a sense of individual rights and some protections. Of course, the common law uh, becomes developed and that also starts to create some notion of there's a common good of upholding the laws, including, you know, with the, with the involvement of people, you know, who are, uh, you know, below the level of the king. And so you slowly get an incremental development of what could be called, you know, a common good, a, a, a tacit understanding that, to quote back from your interview with Josh, that, you know, we're, we're better in the bargain as opposed to out of the bargain. But how can you have a bargain in feudalism where people saw themselves almost celestially differently? They, they dressed differently. They had no interactions. Isn't that the essence of feudalism, difference rather than similarity? It doesn't necessarily make it a bad system. It was a socio-political system that worked for many centuries. Well, but can yeah. you, and this comes back, I think, the reason I keep on bringing it up is I think it's the, it's the core question about how democracy can survive in America. As people are so different, the elites on the coasts, you and I, Brooke, versus mm -hmm. the people in the hinterland. We, we live differently. We, we think differently. We read different books. We speak the same language. We might carry the same passport. But in every other sense, we have nothing in common. Um, the, the nature of feudalism was one that reiterated those differences, um, which yeah. accounts for perhaps the absence of democracy. Well, I think you've put your finger on the the great challenge uh, today, uh, and we can certainly look back to eras like feudalism and say, look, you know, how did it possibly happen that people who were so different, you know, started to understand some kind of commonality or enough commonality uh, to go along with, you know, a a new or different working arrangement. Um, I mean, if we just suspend the, the current situation for a moment and look back, uh, you know, feudalism started to change, uh, you know, after the 14th and 15th century, where uh, because of, you know, economic uh, changes and the aftermath of the, of, the, of, the, of the Black Death and whatnot, uh, there was, you know, more, more uh, there was a little bit more commercial activity. People uh, working in the fields had new opportunities. Um, they could be more selective about where they worked. Um, there was a kind of a, you know, a coming uh, level of commercialism uh, that started to, in some small way, blur some boundaries. And then, of course, as you get later down the line, I mean, the, the wars against uh, foreign enemies, against France, uh, started eventually to build up a sense of patriotism and, and, and specialness of being English. Um, so... You know, the whole process of why would people start to think more as one as opposed to separate, literally, you know, feudal, feudal peasants or even slaves uh, is the challenge of democracy. And I think much of the tension today, not all of the tension, but much of the tension today is about the growing inequality in our society and people feeling disenfranchised from how real decisions are made. And one of the themes in our book, which I think you talked about with Josh, is that democracies always face a, what we call a challenge of scale, which is as they grow, as they get bigger, um, and usually a, along with that, as they get more prosperous, things get more complicated and more contentious. 
And if we, if you want to keep governing yourself, you have to make adaptation to accommodate that that those growing uh, the growing differences and figure out new ways to bring people together. Um, so it, it's absolutely a challenge today. Um, education as well as wealth is a great differentiator, as, as you mentioned. Uh, and I think, you know, we can be optimistic about democracy, but there's no question that if it's going to continue on, we're going to have to figure out some next iteration or the next software release, if I can, of, 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 of civic friendship. Yeah, and as, as you note, and as you imply, democratic systems aren't by definition egalitarian. In fact, the reverse may be true. We are speaking with um, uh, Brooke Manville, who is the co-author of an uh, interesting new book, The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. He's the modernist in the team with Josh Ober. He's written about 18th century England, 19th century America. I'm going to take a short break now, Josh. And after the break, I want to talk more specifically about your contribution to the book, uh, to 18th century England and 19th century America, what we can learn from those about the future of democracy. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Wonderful new publication. Run a short ad from them, and then we'll be back with Brooke Manville, the co-author of The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. If you want to make sure democracy survives... Stay for the second part of this show. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are with Brooke Manville, the co-author of The Civic Bargain. Brooke, um, you focus on 18th century England and 19th century America in, 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 in The Civic Bargain. What can we learn from those two examples about the challenges and perhaps the opportunities of 21st century America in particular? You know, um, Andrew, I think one of the big learnings for us, and I think would be a, a learning for our readers, and, and we've, we've talked about this book before other audiences, and this is often a, a sort of an aha that comes back at us, is that there is a commonality uh, that cuts across the sort of the line of modernity and antiquity that people, I think, don't, under, uh, don't appreciate. Um, you know, there's this notion, uh, first of all, that every democracy is is unique and has nothing to do and nothing can be learned from any other one. Uh, but the gulf is particularly big in kind of common understanding between the ancients and the moderns, and for good reasons. I mean, obviously, the ancient world was pretty different in, in many regards. But I think the, the sort of the aha is, you know, if you sort of strip democracy down to a very simple concept. Uh, again, this notion of, of, of working together without a boss except each other. You can start to see a pattern. Um, and the pattern was the key to sort of our overall thesis that um, there's this, this bargain that must be struck in order to for people to govern themselves. And that if it is maintained and then over time reinforced and even updated, 
the, the likelihood that the democracy will, will continue is strong. So vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the modern cases, uh, the first thing we, we need to do is, is strip away the belief that, that you know, a, a modern parliamentary system or a constitutional government you know, has nothing to do with uh, a Roman Republic or an Athenian um, polis uh, self-governing itself. Uh, the second thing we notice, uh, on the other hand, is that the differences are interesting unto themselves. Uh, so when the English people uh, developed uh, their democracy, it took a very long time, um, much longer than it did to develop in, in Athens and, 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 and Rome as well. Again, it depends when you want to start counting the democracy. So the English approach was essentially very cautious. It was incremental. Uh, it was developed over centuries. Um, as long back as the 13th century, there was Magna Carta and things like that, talking about individual rights. And yet there was not really any universal franchise uh, in, in, in Britain until literally the 20th century. So what a long incubation uh, with lots of learnings and lots of... Uh, Lots of you know off off ramps and and, and back agains uh, for for the British experiment, and so that was their approach. And they ended up. I mean, even today, as you know, there is still nominally a, a king. Um, so theirs has been a very cautious and incremental approach with lots of um, learnings along the way and lots of uh, particular rights uh, and and special. Uh, protections accorded to people. That was their approach. And arguably, it's one of the reasons that it has been, you know, so stable for, for so long. It's not the whole argument, but that's, that's part of it. The American situation, of course, came very suddenly, at least that's on the surface what we look like, um, because of a revolution and then a, a fairly rapid you know, pulling together under, under a deadline of pressure, frankly, uh, a constitution. Now, that ignores the fact that a lot of the American experience was, in fact, drawn from them being, you know, uh, part of the British Empire and having been raised in the tradition of, of British values and, and British um, aspirations. So there is a background uh, that goes be prior to the revolution. Um, Self-governance in the colonies uh, was, a, was a precursor to self-governance after the Constitution was, was drafted. Um, so you can look at kind of the, the path of development and compare and contrast. And that's interesting because it helps you understand that the bargain is at the end of the day, kind of what, 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 what grounds it all. Um, but the way you get to a bargain, the way the bargain is maintained or not maintained may differ depending again on the culture, the historical setting, uh, the situation of, of, of the nation. And I think there's a lesson there that you know, each bargain is its own situation. Uh, here in America, where we're struggling, we have lots of different issues, lots of different kinds of people than other places that have had democracy uh, as well. Brooke, Brooke, I'm sure you're gonna get this criticism with the book. You're an ex-McKinsey guy, white, wealthy American educated at Oxford, Josh, another white guy teaching at Stanford. Some people might suggest that you're 
reintroducing Western civilization in the back door, making claiming that we have to go back to antiquity and 18th century England and 19th century America to make sense of democracy and how it survives and this idea of the civic bargain. Some people might read the book or hear this interview and say, this guy's got nothing to do with me. He doesn't understand my world, whether it's a colonial world, an African world, a world uh, very different from the one of uh, Brooke Manville and, and, and Josh Ober. Uh, you're, you're very reasonable. You see the, the entire world as one long, almost perhaps McKinsey experiment in bargaining. How would you respond to that criticism? Well, first very of all, male, very rational, yeah, very controlled we, and calm. We've already had had the criticism, um, and I guess our book started with a sort of a you know a, a daring uh, a daring move that we actually are going to resuscitate Western civilization as a source of understanding uh, about what will happen to the next iteration of of our Western civilization. You know, we we look upon this a little bit almost like anthropologist, which is look suspend moral judgment for a moment. Let's just think about how these democracies uh, have, you know, were able to last for a very long time. Uh, we were pushing back against the notion that democracy is going to die. You know, it's all over. It's inevitable. We said, wait a minute, before we, before we say the epitaph, let, uh, let's, let's at least look at these case studies and say, what is it that they did that made them um, continue? And they all faced challenges uh, of, of, of a similar sort uh, of people who were outsiders um, battling for more privileges and, 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 and rights and dignity against insiders. Um, and, you know, we've got another version of that same battle going on because democracies don't stand still. I mean, patricians the versus plebeians, whether it's yeah. Rome or Greece. Yeah, well said. 18th century England or 19th century America. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, in antiquity, there was a version of identity politics that Cleisthenes uh, sought to overturn. I mean, I know you talked with Josh about this whole notion of that in the Athenian revolution, there was a deliberate effort to mix the population by this you know, elaborate uh, voting scheme that brought people from the center, the coast, and the other parts of, of Attica, and then mixed them up. Um, you know, we've got a challenge today of uh, identity politics, which is increasingly fragmenting people. So you, know, you and I are, 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 are white guys, and we're different from people who are not white, who are not educated. And, you know, my answer to that is, yeah, uh, but if we want democracy to work, we're going to have to figure out more about what we have in common and less about our differences. And, you know, that was part of the Athenian revolution. It was part of the Roman revolution. Uh, it happened as part of the narrative in, in the Britain's, British situation. It took a very long time, but, you know, and we are facing it today. So we will have to overcome the kind of challenges that are made right now by, you know, your hypothetical and often very real criticism. Um, there is a place for people who are, you know, not in the, in the elite. There, there has to be a place for. Well, that goes without saying, Brooke. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think that's making any news. Uh, earlier this week, I also talked with um, uh, Daniel Ziblatt, a distinguished uh, political scientist at Harvard on, um, 
whether the American Constitution is undermining American democracy. Uh, Ziblatt and uh, Zablinski, they, they have an, uh, a new uh, book out suggesting that America, the Amer American Constitution essentially needs to be overturned, that it's enabling uh, a dictatorship of the minority. What is your book in terms of the civic bargain tell us about the value of an 18th century constitution in a 21st century world? Well, I've, I've not read the Ziblad book, but I'm guessing from what you said that we are very much in sync with at least the spirit of what, uh, what he is arguing. I mean, a key point of our, of our, of our book is that the civic bargain is not a one-time event. It must be renewed and revived and adapted because essentially democracy is like a living organism. It has to continue to adapt to its environment and challenges in order to, in order to survive. So um, our 18th century uh, constitution uh, had all sorts of assumptions and accommodations made at the beginning um, that are very alien to many of us uh, today. Slavery being, of course, the, 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 the big one that has been slowly undone over time. Um, but there are many other things about, you know, how the Electoral College works, how the Supreme Court works. Yeah, they really, those guys, Levinsky and uh, Ziblatt, they really want to get rid of the Electoral College. They see that as the biggest problem now. In the yeah, world. but I just think conceptually, Andrew, it's not, you know, it's, it's not that we wanted to get down to the level of, you know, this article needs to be rewritten and the House of Representatives needs to be changed in just this way. But we wanted to lay the, the conceptual groundwork, this notion of the bargain. The bargain must be updated. The bargain must keep alive in order for democracies that face new challenges all the time to keep adapting. So right. I, mean, I think it's a very important and interesting point. And I think people, the, 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 the final question, Brooke, on this is, is, is you're right, I think, that the bargain does need to be kept being updated and everyone needs to be reminded of this civic bargain uh, um, strengthening or being the foundations of, of contemporary democracy. The ancients were very good at celebrating that institutionally or culturally. Have we lost touch with reminding ourselves of what that bargain is? It's not institutions. It's not elections, is it? It's something more complicated than that. Well, you get into the whole question of, you know, patriotism and nationalism. And, and of course, that has gotten to be a very complicated and, and, and vexed topic um, because of you know, bad associations with a lot of those words. And people celebrate our 4th of July in the United States for probably an increasingly less uh, set of patriotic version uh, than, they, than maybe before. But there's no question if you look back at, at Rome, if you look back at, at, at Greece, if you look at some of the, um, the jubilees in, in Britain, I mean, the celebration of who we are as a people is very important as, as a source of reinforcement that we are a community and that we have, you know, certain shared common goods that we must continue to work on. And so I do think that's, a, that's an important point. 